0: In October of 2018 Paul Yak of Fast Company noted money continues to pour into the digital health space to the tune of nearly 12 billion dollars in investment in 2017 but few companies have cracked the code for delivering technologies that truly transform healthcare why Hello and welcome to Data Point the podcast where we talk about all the ways data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare our guest today is Dr. Rachel Calcutt. Dr. Calcutt is a trauma surgeon at the University of California, San Francisco's Medical Center. She's also program director for the Smarter Health Artificial Intelligence Initiative at UCSF's Center for Digital Health Innovation. Dr. Calcutt's lab is a part of an interesting construct that involves pairing a multidisciplinary team from UCSF With commercial partners who have expertise in product development and marketing, what this allows them to do is it allows them to solve clinically meaningful problems and get products to market much, much faster than the seven to 10 years it usually takes. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Rachel Calcutt as much as I did. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So it's been such a uh, an enjoyable experience for me getting to know you uh, as we've prepared for this interview. And I guess I want to share some of that with our listeners. Could you give us a little bit of background uh, that sort of brings us to contextually uh, how you came to be involved in the work that you're doing with the CDHI?
1: Sure. I actually have a very interesting pathway and I tell people I have the best job in the world because on one hand, I get to do incredibly important patient care and actually still take care of patients as a trauma surgeon um, every day. I'm taking care of someone and potentially saving a life. And then on the days when I'm not caring for patients, I'm doing this incredibly interesting and impactful research. And the pathway that I took to get there is sort of interesting. Um, During the time that I was a surgery resident and I was training to be a surgeon, I had the unique opportunity to go and spend two years dedicated um, to learning how to be a health services researcher and got a graduate degree in that. And that was an incredibly formidable time for me because it really made me think about a lot of the problems that we face as surgeons in a very different way, Um, all the way from thinking about public policy to research design and methodology to the economics of healthcare. But I was also sort of struck by the fact that we there were some limitations in health services research that we had very interesting questions that we wanted to ask, but we were often limited by the size and quantity of data that we had. Mm. And that traditional approaches to approaching the problem were fantastic and great and give us a lot of the background of evidence-based medicine. But there was still a finite limit to some of the things that we could solve. So later on, after I had become a surgeon and was practicing as a trauma surgeon, I got the opportunity to do some additional training through a career development award from the National Institutes of Health, which gave me dedicated time to research to allow me to retrain as a data scientist. And the whole concept and idea behind being a data scientist was to bring together all of this sophisticated research methodology that I had um, developed over the years, but start to approach problems in a very different way. And over time, I developed an expertise in these advanced um, analytic techniques that we use to approach things and actually developed an expertise in artificial intelligence. So I have this very, very interesting background that sort of merges traditional research with this very new field of data science.
0: You know, I imagine that that is kind of a unique circumstance. Um, that you have a physician who is, you know, trained and practicing who also has that public health services research background as well as data science. Isn't that a fairly unique combination?
1: It's a pretty unique combination. There's a few people out there who definitely um, have a pretty significant data science background, and then there's another group of a fairly sizable number who actually have some pretty sophisticated health services research background. Mm. The combination of the two is pretty unique and a lot of people claim that I'm an n of one meaning that I'm a unique <laughs> entity Uh, Definitely, through the work that I've done and the people that I've mentored and worked with, uh, there's definitely a growing interest in the field of data science. So I think there will be more who follow behind me. But it's a pretty unique combination in medicine in general, but very unique as a surgeon. Very, very few surgeons even um, have any experience with what data science and artificial intelligence actually means.
0: I was imagining that that might be even rarer uh, among surgeons. Um, It probably comes from watching too much TV, but I have this uh, view of the surgeon kind of sailing in and scrubbing in and doing their thing, and then they're done. Uh, but obviously, you've taken a much bigger picture view of you know how your clinical work uh, ultimately drives your research.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that is perhaps the secret sauce, so to speak, of the impact of the work that I've been fortunate enough to be involved in is that I bring that clinician hat to the research. And so when we think about problems we're going to work on or the approach that we're going to take from a scientific standpoint, I'm always framing it through that background of experience of that health services research, public health background, as well as my actual boots on the ground clinician point of view. That's been incredibly important for us as we think about the kinds of problems that we're going to work on and try to solve.
0: Now, for the benefit of our listeners, I mentioned in, in our introduction that you are your lab is a part of the Center for Digital Health Innovation at UCSF. Can you tell us a little bit about CDHI uh, and its mission, uh, just for a little additional context?
1: Absolutely. So the Center for Digital Health Innovations was formed about by- five years ago at um, UCSF as a campus-wide entity. So what that means is it operates above the various different schools that are here and allows us to interact with faculty from any of the schools who we can partner with to do research The idea was that we would be a home where people who were interested in taking vast quantities of digital data that are now available to us for things like patient monitors or the electronic medical record, so on and so forth, and have a centralized home where people could come together as researchers to answer very interesting questions where there was a specific need to actually make a rapid innovation. So for us, we take on projects that have a life cycle of somewhere between six months and two years from Mm -hmm. concept and design to actually creating something that's a pre-clinical proof of concept that can rapidly be created into a product by our partners. We partner with um, commercial entities to co-develop these solutions, and then we rely on the um, industry partners that we partner with to actually take our proof of concept ideas to actual markets so that they can be rapidly reintroduced back into the clinical environment.
0: It's such a yep. forward thinking model, um, yeah. both in terms of bringing multidisciplinary approaches and taking advantage of that that rich heritage of research that exists at UCSF, but then injecting in it sort of that practical element of partners who can actually make real uh, some of these things that you're creating and discovering in the in the lab. It's uh, it's pretty fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's a great model from my perspective. You know, certainly we have um, lots of innovation hubs on our campus at UCSF. We're obviously in the heart of innovation in the country here in the San Francisco area. But um, we were noticing that in the digital space, the technology and the inventions move so rapidly mm. that... It's impractical in many instances for our very smart um, clinician researchers to actually get their products in this particular space from concept and design to actual product themselves. And so this was a way to actually allow that rapid innovation cycle to happen in a relatively seamless way. I'm making it sound like it's simple. It clearly isn't. There's a lot of heavy lifting that goes on to get it from to finish, but it allows our researchers and our clinicians to do what they're really great at, which is idea generation and high-quality research, and then it allows us to rely on commercial partners whose expertise is often in product development, not something that we routinely are great at in academic medical centers to really pair the two together, to really be transformative. The goal is to really accelerate the transformation of our healthcare industry. And one of the things that's particularly exciting about this is that this is true co-development where we sit side by side with our partners. And I think both groups think that they get the better end of the deal. We get to work with these really incredibly smart people who we know very little about, most of us know very little about product development. And we need to learn a tremendous amount from them. And on the flip side, they get to learn a great deal from us about data science approaches, even if they're experts in data science. Still putting on your clinician hat changes the way we think about things from a data science perspective, yes. and so they get to sit with us. So I think both groups feel like they're getting the better end of the deal.
0: Sounds like a true uh, winning situation for everybody. I'd love to talk a little bit more specifically about your lab. You know, who are the who are the kind of people that you're affiliated with? To some extent, you know, as an n of one or or a unicorn. You know, you have this unique set of skills, and yet you've had an opportunity to surround yourself uh, with folks who uh, have different uh, different types of skills to, to make everything work. Tell us a little bit about your lab within CDHI, uh, how it works, and what you're focused on.
1: Yeah, so um, we focus on a variety of topic areas. Um they really come from the idea that we wanna work on things that are impactful big problems that have a potentially solvable solution. Mm. So we've things all the way from efficiency tools that can help providers to make their care more efficient. We work on effectiveness tools to help the care that's provided be more effective. We work on patient-centered tools where it's really coming from the focus of the patient as a consumer of healthcare and developing tools that can assist them in being interactive and important players in their own healthcare. And then we work in the background on a really interesting work around making care safer for patients
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a variety of forms and fashion. Those are some of the examples of the type of work that we do. The thing that's interesting about my position, I'm the director of data science, so I have the scientific oversight and the program oversight of what's known as the Smarter Health Initiative, which Mm -hmm. is our artificial intelligence portion of CDHI, and I have the great fortune that I get to make decisions about the kinds of problems that we're going to work on, and the first criteria that we have to make sure is that the what we're going to work on actually has a capacity to be transformative in healthcare mm. but not so disruptive and what i mean by that is is that if we design and develop tools that are where we don't have the infrastructure yet to implement those tools or they're dramatically different than what patients or providers would be willing to adopt at the present time, those tools won't ever see the light of day. They will be interesting academic papers and publications and presentations, but they won't actually change care. And so our main criteria is this has to be something that can actually be helpful Mm -hmm. to the providers or the patients and something that can actually work in an environment with some um, adapting Infrastructure, and what ends up happening is I get the opportunity to um, either find people on campus who have really great uh, novel new ideas, and then partner with them to make those ideas come to life, mm-hmm. or to grow out of my own personal lab where I obviously study trauma patients and the outcomes of trauma patients,
0: mm-hmm. and are
1: the tools that we can develop that will help trauma patients or critical care patients, or. Um, We conceptualize brand-new ideas, and then we go and find investigators who would be interested in working on those topics. We then pair those investigators together with an industry partner who is interested in working in a particular topic area or space, and then we're off to the races designing and developing.
0: Excellent. We're going to take a short break right now, but we're going to be right back with Dr. Rachel Calcutta talking about her work on the Smarter Health Artificial Intelligence Initiative at the Center for Digital Health Innovation at UCSF. Stick around. Hey everybody, this is Reed Smith, and this is Chris Boyer, and we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information, and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. All right, we're back on the Data Point podcast. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Dr. Rachel Calcutta. Um, Rachel, before we went into the break, you were talking about the work that your team does, uh, the Smarter Health Artificial Intelligence Initiative. And one of the things that I was really curious about is, who are the people on these teams? Are these uh, data scientists that are embedded at UCSF? Are they med students who are doing their own research? How, how do you build the teams to do this research?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So. Um, thus far, um, the Smarter Health Initiative itself has been in place for um, about two years uh, as part of the CDHI, and over that two-year time period, we've had about 40 individuals of various different backgrounds who've contributed to the work that we do. So it's a large team. About half of those are people who um, work as staff data scientists or uh, IT infrastructure or computer programmers, or research assistants, or the part where we still have to have business development, et cetera. Um, about half of those people work full-time for me.
0: Mm.
1: And they are of varying different backgrounds. Some of them are PhD data scientists who are very interested in working in the intersection of academic medicine and um in the commercial world, but didn't really want to be fully in either one. So we provide this really fantastic space for them. Some of them are faculty data scientists who actually are pursuing academic careers and Mm -hmm. we help and develop those academic careers. And then a number of them are, undergrad, are people who've finished undergraduate education and are looking to do something very interesting um, between doing this and going to medical school or nursing school or some type of professional school, and they work as our research assistants gathering data for us. And then we have a whole team of people who have to deal with all of the contracting, the product development pieces of this, the licensing pieces of it. Mm-hmm. So team of folks that have a variety of different backgrounds, one of the things that was um, most important to us early on in the beginning is we actually had to build a specific IT-based team who could provide the compute infrastructure and expertise to really allow our data science team to focus on doing the data science. So that's another Mm -hmm. really important piece of the infrastructure, both people and actual hardware and software that we have and then the final piece of this is our faculty investigators who we partner with who spend a portion of their time working on these projects and the other portion of their time many of them being clinicians that's sort of the other half of the group that we work with so pretty variety pretty big variety of of persons who are involved in trying to make these things come to life. It's absolutely a village that it takes to get one of these from start to finish.
0: Absolutely. And it's got to be – you're in a a really unique and and special circumstance in that UCSF must have a lot of really fantastic data to work with uh, for this kind of research.
1: Yeah, we do. I think that's another really important piece is that um, we – actually use sometimes the data that that exists within the UC system, Mm -hmm. but other times we use data that is available outside of the UC system through various different partners. And so we will use what's available to us, obviously under the constraints of all the appropriate um, data protection, all the work that we do in our research environment, we do under the guise of um, conducting it consistent with institutional review boards and protecting Mm -hmm. patients. And all these really important pieces uh, for doing this kind of work, in order to really make sure that um, the work that we do can be done in a safe manner.
0: Absolutely, and I'm I'm curious about whether you might be able to give some examples of some of those data sources. I mean, it it seems clear that you know having uh, health record data would be uh, you know sort of foundational, but are you doing any work with, uh, you know, g- genomics, uh, any work with uh, sort of wearables and other sort of biosensor data? Any, any kind of real interesting data sets that have uh, come to the fore?
1: Yeah, um, we, we will use anything. So I tell everyone that um, everything's a sensor. And so from my perspective, we will use whatever's available to us. And in some cases, we actually have some protocols where patients have signed on to provide extra data that isn't available traditionally in the medical record. Ah. And so the appropriate consent and so on and so forth. And so we will use any type of data that we can gather I have long believed that the vast majority of the interesting information about patients that really determines outcome is actually in data sources that we traditionally as researchers have not um, really utilized. Yeah. And so looking beyond what our own intrinsic biases are in terms of approaching problems is also a really important piece of data science.
0: Fantastic. You know, I, I would love to hear maybe an example or two. Of some work that you've done, I know that uh, you know I read a press release about some work that you've done with GE Healthcare uh, using their Edison platform. Could you give us some examples of some of the work that you've done in the past?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that um GE example is the best example because that's the closest um, from start to finish of one of the things that we're able to share at, at this time. Mm-hmm. So I Trauma surgeons are also, most trauma surgeons are also boarded in critical care, um, intensive care unit medicine, and so I often take care of patients in the ICU, and so I was interested in seeing if we could develop artificial intelligence-based solutions that could help us to better identify potential life-threatening findings on chest X-rays sooner Uh than typically is done. And so we conceived an idea, which has been uh, now uh, titled the Critical Care X-ray Suite, where we did just that. And um, we were able to develop several proofs of concepts. Uh, one of which uh, is done in partnership with our radiology colleagues um, around pneumothorax here Mm -hmm. at UCSF. We had some investigators that at the same time I was interested in developing something for the clinicians. They were interested in developing something for the radiologist. And so um, just sort of serendipitously, we combined efforts and created something that actually services both groups. And so the combined effort between our radiology group and us in CDHI, we were able to deliver to GE a suite of algorithms around making critical care x-rays safer, more efficient, and faster diagnosis. GE has then taken that, and after a great deal of work on their part as well, through the co-development process, they have turned that into a product that they're going to embed into their next generation x-ray machines, and that um, has been submitted for FDA approval, and we're waiting wow. to get the feedback from the FDA. And once that's complete, then it will be very close to actually being in a healthcare environment. And the way it works is that once an X-ray is taken, um, immediately there is some notification that there may be a potentially important finding. Ultimately, just like autopilot, we're never going to let a plane fly on its own without a sure. pilot in in the cockpit same kind of thing. We're not going to use artificial intelligence, at least in our hands, um, without a physician check to it. But what this does is actually bring the attention of the clinician and the radiologist focused more rapidly on things in x-rays that might have the important findings that people need to know about sooner. So that's a really great story where we had this fantastic idea about what we might want to do. And then we had some interest in it, and then we found a commercial partner who said, you know, we have a use for that. And the the collective expertise, of course, GE brought a lot of data science expertise to this as well because they have a big data science program. Mm -hmm. We brought a lot of clinical expertise and data science expertise, and the combined efforts of it led to something getting from concept and design to product in a little more than two years.
0: That's incredible. And it was a question I was going to ask you, because I remember in the video that you did about Smarter Health, you said something along the lines of, you know, the the things that we're working on aren't going to take 15 to 20 years to get into use. It happens much faster. And in this case, two years, that's pretty remarkable.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it kind of depends on when you start the clock and you're counting. (laughs) I think two years is pretty fair for this. And that's for medicine and specifically academic medicine, that's an incredibly short life cycle from Absolutely. concept and science to having something close to actually being in the clinical environment. And I think for me as a clinician, what an incredibly rewarding opportunity to walk into an ICU and see something that you played a part in. Mm. Actually functioning in the environment in a way that you fundamentally believe will really change lives. and I think all of us clinicians who work in the fields that I work in can think of the examples of patients where this type of technology could have changed outcome for a patient. Yep. and um, I think that that motivated both us and the commercial partner to want to work on this problem
0: is there a way you know in this circumstance what you're talking about is some anecdotal examples of uh, situations where physicians wish that this had existed is there a way that you'll ultimately be able to track you know what sort of outcomes were changed um, as as a result of the work
1: Well, we can definitely um, track the time to people being aware of the findings, Mm -hmm. and I think we'll be able to do that. But it's interesting, once you do something that changes workflow and changes how care is delivered, it becomes a little bit difficult to say what it was before and what it is now because (laughs) people's entire world changes. So as an example, When we first, as a field, um, started using ultrasounds to put in large um, lines for resuscitation purposes, so Uh large central lines, it used to be when I trained that we just did it based on people's anatomy and were like, okay, we think this is where the vessel is, and then we would make the intervention to put the line in. And there were complications. The complications were not rare, but they also weren't, frequent. sure. And what happened was people decided to use ultrasound to help guide folks in putting these in and the ultrasound made things more safe. But now if you go and you talk to people who are training right now, they don't know how to put a line in without ultrasound because (laughs) that's the only way that they know how to do it. And so when you talk about how much safer something is once practices change, it becomes a little hard retrospectively to go back and guess what it would have been like without that.
0: Yeah. And and And, trying to understand what didn't happen is always a a little harder than trying to assess and uh, quantify what did happen.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I, I think the other, the other piece of this too, is that, um, In certain hands, like in my hands, whether I use the ultrasound or I use an anatomy approach, I probably have a different safety profile than someone who's only ever been trained in one or the other. Mm. And so it's a little bit interesting in how you sort through this. I think ultimately we can all think of those anecdotal cases where where it's very clear to us that it would have changed outcomes. Yep. Uh, I think it will be hard in some ways to prove that this changed outcomes changes outcome, but the really unique and nice piece of this particular work is that even if no singular life was ever saved or changed by this, this is still a great tool because it makes um, care for the patients more efficient for the providers and for the radiologists. So the tool has multiple features built into it where we're actually, from a clinician and radiologist standpoint, we're solving multiple problems with the same approach Therefore, even if lives aren't saved, we're still making an improvement.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you pointed that out, actually, because clearly I think saving lives in an incrementally valuable way is the ultimate objective, but it's not the only objective to make the care more efficient, to make the experience better, uh, to have it cost less, uh, to have less waste. I mean, all of these things are so valuable Um, and it feels as though... At some level, you hit all of those things uh, with this particular initiative.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, definitely with the initi- with the Smarter Health Initiative, and specifically the more of those things that are contained within the individual projects that we hit, mm. the more optimized uh, ultimately care is going to be for people.
0: Fantastic. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful to you, Rachel, for spending this time with us. Um, as we uh, as we head out the door, uh, for those who are interested, how can they find out more information about your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They can find us um, on the internet. They can look up Smarter Health UCSF or Smarter Health CDHI, and they can see a video about our concept of the types of things that we're doing and get a little bit more information about what we're up to.
0: Fantastic. I will make sure to put those links in our show notes as well, because uh, it is really helpful. And I know uh, you're also on Twitter. Uh, so if yep. you're interested in following Dr. Calcut on Twitter, she is at uh, C-A-L-L-C-U-R-A, Calcura, which sounds like an abbreviation of last name, first name.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: Okay. Very good. Thanks so much, Rachel. And uh, for our listeners, thanks for being here and we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at or send a direct message to at chimoose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at
1: touchpoint.health.